losing my column was to me, you know, a very small thing in the scheme of things, but it was quite symbolic for me that uh, that I lost my job as a restaurant critic before because there were no restaurants to review. Like that just seemed quite outlandish at the time. And in terms of getting my column back, I'm really happy about that. I feel, I do feel like perhaps I think differently about writing about restaurants than I did in March. And I'm still working through exactly what that means. Today on Dirty Linen, we're doing something a little different. For those of you who haven't listened to our sibling podcast, Deep in the Weeds, I'm Anthony Huckstep. And to celebrate the extraordinary achievement of 100 episodes of Dirty Linen, we decided to turn the tables on Danny Ballant. Get her story, her experiences of this incredible time in our history. As you are aware, Danny is a powerhouse, omnipresent, one of our leading food journalists, the critic turned activist, the voice of the voiceless, tireless, unrelenting in her quest to unearth the issues at the heart of not only the industry, but who we are as people. Danny, 100 episodes is amazing in some sense, but it's not surprising given your energy during this time. Oh my God, I didn't know that you thought all those nice things about me. <laughs> I thought, I did have a thought that um, when we decided that you were going to interview me, that it was going to be really emotional, but I didn't know it was going to start from like the first second. <laughs> well, I did say that if you cry, I probably will. So I just thought I'll get it out of the way at the beginning. Let's do that. Uh, yeah. What was the question? <laughs> well, the funny thing is I, did, I don't think I actually asked you a question. But how are you feeling? 100 episodes, you know, in just a couple of months, it's been, you know, a pretty crazy period of time. Dirty linen is extraordinary. Well, you know, thank you. And thank you for having me on the Deep in the Weeds network because I couldn't think of a, a better place. Uh, it's crazy 100 episodes. I mean, doing an episode Monday to Friday means that you do clock them up pretty quickly. Uh, but I think, you know, 2020 is such an insane year that I, I honestly, I don't know <laughs> if I if I didn't look at the calendar and someone told me I'd started it five years ago, I'd kind of believe them. And if they told me I'd started it last week, that would seem kind of realistic as well. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know what, what time is, but I've just, you know, in, in preparation for this chat and I suppose just thinking about the milestone, I've skimmed back over the list of people that I've chatted to and, yeah, we've really gone some places. Um, it's been really, really rich and it's been an honour to uh, have a forum to uh, encourage people to share their stories. Well, I think as we go, we can deconstruct Dirty Linen and, and how important it's been and the influence that it's had. But do you want to just take us, I mean, Melbourne's had and Victoria has just had an extraordinary year, um, far more uh, intense than the rest of Australia. Can you t just take us to that moment when the second lockdown ended and you were, had that chance to go to restaurants and cafes again that morning? How did you feel waking up? Well, I think it's it was a swirl of emotions because it honestly felt like Victorians and, and Melbournians particularly had done something really incredible. And it was, it was a bit of a bloody slog. It was a long winter and 
there was, as time went on, you know, we, people were getting quite frayed and that I realised, I suppose, you know, this pandemic is a time when a lot of people have realised a lot of things about themselves. And one thing that became quite apparent to me about myself is that I'm not that good with conflict and with people. I like it when it feels like we're standing shoulder to shoulder together, like, um, you know, working on working on something. And when there's a lot of dissent and anger I find that really difficult and there were there was a bit of that in Melbourne towards the end of the second lockdown and I can understand that it was it it is and it was and it it still will be in lots of ways a super challenging period for many people Uh, so I think as we came out of lockdown this second time I felt relief hope I felt fear that we were going to wreck it and go back there and that fear hasn't left me Uh, but I felt that it's so important to Melbourne that we can come together in hospitality venues it is so much a part of the way that the city sees itself as being Melbourne that I felt really happy and really excited really excited especially as I went to a cafe for my first breakfast excited for the people that work there that they could exercise that part of themselves and you could really feel the buzz and the relief the exhaustion and that I guess mustering of new energy. In many senses most of Australia is kind of back to normal you know there's still restrictions but life has been going on as normal as normal can be but what's it like in Melbourne now? You're only just sort of opening up again. What, what does it feel like? Well, I think we feel like we're a bunch of bloody legends for getting that second wave under control. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy. And we do feel really proud of ourselves, even though, you know, there were, as I said, you know, there it wasn't there wasn't consensus along the way in this, and there still isn't. Uh, and I'm sure there never will be. But I think everybody here, no matter where they, you know, where they sit, um, I guess politically or in terms of their epidemiological response, what you know, where what their points of views are, I think everyone can agree that it was good to get 700 plus cases down to zero, and now we're up to you know almost two weeks of zero cases. Something that I mean, I'm an optimist and I was sceptical that that was ever going to be possible. It just seemed pretty out of reach. I was happy to go for it, um, but I, it just seemed very, it, it seemed quite a, a bit of a fantasy. And we got there and I think that's amazing. I was out last night at one of my favourite restaurants, Chicholina, and even like each, each time I go out now, I'm a little bit nervous that I'm going to see uh, COVID unsafe behaviour that's going to make me stressed. Uh, but I really didn't. You know, everyone was pretty chill. It was a, it was a nice night. Uh, the tables were well spaced. The sanitizer was applied liberally. Contact details were taken. Everyone was doing everything by the book. And uh, and and I, when, I make, when I say that, I mean up and down the street. I knew Chicholina would be ship shape, but everywhere on everywhere along the strip seemed to be doing the right thing. And that just made me feel excited and Melbourne felt a bit like Melbourne again and, you know, the, the rattle of the trams feels like part of this sort of city percussion, uh, part of the song and not this um, eerie clatter from, you know, out of a, a tunnel of silence. We've interviewed you twice on Deep in the Weeds and in the catch-up episode it was on the eve of opening up again from the first lockdown and you had reservations about eating in restaurants. You were, you were concerned about it. Um the second lockdown's opened up and you've eaten in restaurants again and you've also got your column back. 
what has it felt like going to restaurants and starting a role that you had before the the pandemic again? I think it's it's really it's really great. I mean, to me, I think losing my column was to me, you know, a very small thing in the scheme of things. But it was quite symbolic for me that uh, that I lost my job as a restaurant critic before because there were no restaurants to review. Like that just seemed quite outlandish at the time. And I guess getting it back, uh, open, reopening now does feel. I feel more confident because there's there's no community transmission that we know about. And uh, although I don't believe that the virus is gone, I think that, you know, the systems are in place to contact trace and uh, we know we know that things can slide back. So I really hope that Melbourne's going to, uh, you know, just keep a lid on things and do the right thing. In terms of getting my column back, I'm really happy about that. I feel... I do feel like perhaps I think differently about writing about restaurants than I did in March and I'm still working through exactly what that means. Do you think food journalism has changed forever given these circumstances for those that have been carving out a career in that? Well, I mean, I really want to know what you think about this as well. I I think it has changed. I think as with all these things you know, you come out of something and you feel like nothing's ever going to be the same again, but there is such a sort of back to normal drive in us, I think, as humans and as communities that if people quickly, that I mean, people go back to what they know, right? So I guess things in a way, as you said, you know, things feel a bit normal in around Australia. Uh, so I guess in, in one sense, there's that to, to sort of you know, flop back into is is what it was like before. But I feel like for a start, I've had more to do with the hospitality industry from the inside than I ever have before. I think as a food journalist, especially, you know, like, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago when I was starting, there was definitely that, that quite firm sense of separation, of maintaining anonymity, of, um, yeah, just keeping that distance. And now I've felt myself through the pandemic much more part of the industry, uh, although still reporting on it through that period. But, the, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. A lot of the parameters seem to have changed. I think anonymity as a concept in the age of social media has evaporated somewhat for many of us. Uh, and I think there were probably... I don't know, there are other ways to differentiate myself as a journalist than the idea of this mystery shopper who who comes in to assess a business. And I think it's around storytelling and I think it's something around trust and I think it's something around honouring people's stories and, and projects and experiences yeah, well, how exactly you wrap that up into 350 words because I've, my column has been crunched a bit. I'm still working out. Well, I echo those sentiments and I think that moving forward food journalism, you know, to a, to a degree needs to be shoulder to shoulder, but I think there is there is room for that sort of deconstruction and criticism or at least sort of objective um, perception. But... I know for myself that I don't want to be a restaurant critic anymore, but I think that we need them.
but when that time comes, I'm not sure. I think that um, I think the restaurant industry is still suffering and will for a long time. So what you're saying, I think, makes more sense. Yeah, I guess it's like, what is it to be a critic? Does it mean to be critical? And I suppose, does it, or does it mean to apply your critical faculties to a situation and explain it properly for uh, people who want to know about it? I mean, I, I I'm not sure if you um, listened to the podcast that I put out with Aidan Robinson, who was uh, who was employed at Crown Dinner by Heston. I mean, it's okay if you didn't because it only just came out. and It came out today. I listened to it this morning. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> That's good. Well, I listened to yours as well, so there you go. Um, so, I mean, I was in that podcast, was pretty critical of Crown and I will be critical. I feel like, okay, now I want to do some kind of story about that. And so yeah, I guess there's that sort of criticism which I feel even more empowered to do and more inspired to do because I feel more like calling out injustice. Um, so, yeah, maybe... Maybe there's that. Why did you become a journalist? Can you take us back to that time? Uh, I mean, I became a writer when I worked at Lonely Planet. And, I mean, when I was a kid, I always wanted to write. It was just, yeah, I didn't quite know what, but I always loved writing and that's what I wanted to do. I fell into a job at Lonely Planet, travel publisher, just um, invoicing uh, bookstores at, while, while I was at uni doing an interminable arts degree and there were um, people around Lonely Planet doing super exciting stuff like traveling around the world writing about stuff and I was like okay I want to do that so uh, I just sort of elbowed my way into a job um, as a travel author and then fell from that into doing some food content for Lonely Planet and then fell from that into doing some stuff for the age so yeah, I don't even know if I became a journalist, let alone when. I just started <laughs> doing journalism. And it, there's so much talk about the media and, you know, truth and uh, structural changes in, the me- in you know, the publishing industries. And I guess uh, I've seen a lot of that and been impacted by a lot of that. And uh, But you know what? It's... Uh, it's such a privilege to be a journalist and to get to ask questions. And if you're an in, if you're interested in people, and I'm very interested in people, I don't reckon there's a better job because you just you get to ask the questions and you get to hear people's stories. Well, Dirty Linen is an incredible documentation of not only the crisis but people's lives and and the issues in the hospitality industry. Uh, What's it been like for you as the host going personally going through the pandemic but the burden of carrying everyone else's stories? Well, yeah, I don't – one thing that's been really interesting is being a journalist like in the moment because I've been interviewing people forever and you don't do it publicly, right? Like you do it you, – you get your tra- – you record it or you take notes and you've got your transcript and you can take out all the dumb things that you said and just, you know, leave the pearls that you're, um, that, <laughs> that the subjects um, scatter for you and, you know, shape them into something. For me, I found it a little bit confronting to be, uh, to have my um, machine laid bare in that way of, you know, the kinds of conversations that I have. And I think you do 
yeah, you, I suppose you <laughs> try to be a bit more articulate than you might be when you're not, your questions aren't on show for other people. I don't know. Have you found that? Oh, yeah. I d- I, I'm definitely better on, on the page than I can never find the words when I'm trying to ask a question or not the right words anyway. And, um, but I do enjoy, enjoy this format. And um, I think the beauty of this is that you don't know what's coming from yourself or the person that you're interviewing. And it's, it can capture some, you know, some poor, poor choice of words by me, for instance, or you can just absolute capture absolute magic. And, um, and I guess that's the risk you take doing format like this. Yeah. Well, I think you do actually find the right words. So, um, but I, I think I've done a lot of like thinking on the fly and sort of found my way slowly to a question or a conclusion as I've been in the conversation. And yeah, hopefully people <laughs> don't mind listening to some of that, or I guess that's part of the experience. But going back to your actual question about what's it been like carrying that weight, I think it's sometimes it's sometimes pretty full on and I'm sure it has been for you as well. I think especially when we covered some topics like like mental health, that that was re- felt very worthwhile to do that, but it also felt like a big responsibility and uh, something that, you know, I wondered if I was up to at times. Uh, but I don't know, you do get some really nice feedback from people along the way, so that's good. Um I think also I've gained in confidence. Uh, <laughs> I promised my dog would bark. <laughs> um, Peppy's be- Peppy. Yeah, I mean, Peppy has been a feature of the podcast that Rob, our esteemed producer, has um, dealt with <laughs> more than our listeners for most of the time. Um, so yeah, I think as as it's gone on. I've gained in confidence in terms of pushing back a little bit on some of my subjects. So I was reflecting on one of the early podcasts with um with the restaurateur Lino Scadoni, and um, it was early in the pandemic, and he made a comment about you know Black Lives Matter protests, and that they were um you know he sort of insinuated that they were a cause of some some community transmission. And I sort of knew at the time that that wasn't the case, like that had been disproven, but I didn't say anything. And I think if I did that conversation over again, I would have the confidence and the presence of mind to call him out on that. I mean, it's, and I think, you know, recently uh, when I spoke um, to Susie Pavlov from Becker Restaurant, she was talking about, you know, where I can't remember if it was wearing masks or or whether people are obeying all the the COVID safe rules and and she said there's no right or wrong and I felt comfortable to say, well, I think there is right or wrong. So I think in a, in a way like as a journalist when you're doing a traditional interview that where your questions aren't going to air, you can sort of think your way back into those issues or ask a question down the track or follow or do a follow-up. And I think in a podcast the responsibility to uh, to seek truth and to have that sort of through line. Uh, I don't want those. I don't want want those guests to be like they've been criticism. It's it's, it's been criticised. This is a criticism of myself. And I suppose as much as the podcast is a forum for to share other people's stories, I suppose as I, as the host, uh, 
it has to reflect my my values and uh and if I've got a strong position on something then I feel like that should come through as well has there been any episodes that have either surprised you or meant more to you personally than others well I interviewed my dad um who is a psychiatrist as part of mental health fortnight and that was really meaningful for both of us it was just a really nice way to um have a conversation with him and yeah I don't know I he's a really he's a really good guy and I know that that conversation also meant a lot to to other people both those that know him and those that don't uh so I think that was that was nice that was nice I think because it was a different way from of for me to open up and to reveal myself, which I suppose is something else that you do when you're hosting a podcast. You're not just a cipher, like you've got to be there. And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was nice and that felt a bit brave because I'm not, I don't normally put um, family at the centre of, of my public presence. Um, but, geez, there's been some some really really good ones like I I think um when we went around the world for a few weeks and talked to people in different different countries and and going through different experiences of the pandemic that was that was really amazing I think going going to Beirut was was really incredible talking to a black restaurateur in LA was was um was really meaningful San Francisco not LA but uh, yeah, there's been a lot of. I don't. I haven't had um, a conversation that I that I didn't enjoy. There's. It's been really meaningful for so many listeners. I wonder if we could just go and look in the background of what it takes to pull together a podcast, and you know, amongst all the things you do, how you pick the right people for the for the day. Um, you've been working very closely with Rob Locke, who is the brains behind both Deep in the Weeds and Dirty Linen. Um, can you tell us a bit about the origins of the podcast and sort of what it takes for you to pull it together? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, Rob is crucial. Uh, he's, in, yeah, we obviously, we know that we can't do it without him. So <laughs> he does, yeah, he does the the technical stuff and, uh, he creates the graphics and he's the one that puts the podcast out into internet land and, yeah, problem solver, uh, steadfast captain. guide. Yeah, just, yeah, amazing, amazing captain. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's incredible to have him guiding and shepherding us and he's, yeah, really good sounding board. So... Yeah, and I think <laughs> I feel like you're so much more organised than I am because we've got this <laughs> shared calendar we can see of Rob's and often I'll see like Huck's got, you've got like a 12 o'clock, a 1 o'clock, a 2 o'clock and I'm just like, shit, mate, he's got his whole week sorted. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, oh, my God, who am I going to put on for tomorrow? Uh, so I'm a combination of doing things completely on the fly and probably the most on the fly one was was last week when at 4 o'clock I put a message out on Facebook saying, does anyone in Albury, Wodonga want to come and have a chat because the New South Wales Victoria board is about to open? And so I had um, Jacob Wolke come on like an hour later. Um, 
so that's an wow. example of being very on the fly. <laughs> and well, um, look, I, I live in that world too. You're not alone. I've done many on the fly. But um, <laughs> when you have twin toddlers, I try to load them up as much as possible. Oh, I, I feel like you're my, um, I aspire to be like you with having them all lined up in the calendar. Uh, yeah, so uh, the way it actually works is we get, we ask someone to do it and we work out a time. I check check with Rob that it's okay to put that time in his calendar and then he sends out invitations through this app called Ringer and they get emailed to the person and then the person downloads the app and they open the app up on their phone and we talk into the app. I'm doing it on my desktop. They're doing it on their phone. And uh, the reason we do it like that is that the audio tracks get recorded separately so that when they're spliced together, uh, um, that when they're uploaded and, and Rob puts them together using his magic um, abilities, the f- sound quality is pretty good. So, uh, yeah, we can just pretty much do it sitting <laughs> sitting in a room with a dog and a work-from-home husband and for much of the year some teenagers who are theoretically doing homeschooling and, yeah, make a podcast that goes around the world. The feedback has been pretty extraordinary on the series and it's affected so many, but there's also been people that have not liked certain episodes and also tried to stir the pot. What's some of the experiences you've had with those sort of people? Uh, I guess, you know, when you're talking about issues that uh, mean a lot to people, then people want to have something to say about it, which I welcome. I think that's great. I think probably the the most um, striking ongoing conversation that I've had with someone is a rest, an anonymous restaurateur in Sydney who uh, I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. He, um, he created an obscure Instagram handle specifically to chat to me and he was talking about how he was, was not obeying the social distancing rules in Sydney because he didn't think they, it was necessary and he just wanted to make some money. And I found, I mean, I shared some of that with you and I guess this was in June when things had reopened. I just found it really scary and and worrying and selfish and uh, just bad. But I kept chatting to this person because I was really interested in the mindset and interested in why they thought that these things didn't apply to them. So we did, we had some pretty good chats. Um, There there was then those outbreaks in Potts Point in Sydney and I think a lot of restaurateurs had a bit of a wake-up call and this guy as well uh, did. There was a bit of compliance, few fines handed out and and that scenario where we did see that restaurants could be the site of transmission. So he um, then, yeah, fell into line and started... uh, yeah obeying more of the rules and yeah luckily it's just luck you know chances are that if you don't stick to the rules it actually will be fine but the the more people that do it the more chance there is that it won't be fine for that business for any of the businesses and and indeed for the whole community we know here in Melbourne better than anyone how quickly this thing can get out of hand the series has been a platform where people have been bearing their soul perhaps more than ever in public. It's been really confronting both deep in the weeds and dirty linen and there's been extraordinary stories and the people that have shared their stories have had people reach out to them afterwards after they've bared their soul. Have you got any stories of that sort of feedback that people have got after appearing on the show? 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hope it's all right to say, um, Kate Bartholomew, that, you know, her episode when we were talking about mental health and she just, she shared her, an extraordinary story of, um, yeah, mental health challenges through her childhood and then postnatal depression. And she had a, a really instant and powerful response from people in her world that you know were able to share things with her or you know things things were resolved and just some really really major impacts and that's I mean yeah I was that's I guess I don't know gratifying seems like too selfish a word but it's it's also it's also scary because you feel like you know mental health is such a uh it's so careful carefully poised like you don't want anyone to sort of tumble in the wrong direction so that felt like a big responsibility and I um yeah look I hope that I I hope I stumbled my way through it with um in a way that was helpful and not harmful to people Dirty Linen has uh, affected so many people and been support for them. But I wonder what it's meant for you during this time, doing 100 episodes. What, what, is, what does the podcast series mean for you? Uh, I'm just really, I'm really proud of it and really excited to keep doing it. You know, the, the this podcast started, I guess, you know, in partly to distinguish it from deep in the weeds it was supposed to be a podcast where we get on a topic that's you know related to the hospitality industry and just sort of thrash it around for a week and uh and so you know we, I guess we did that with the visa holders we did that with mental health uh but then circumstances in Melbourne just really ran away with the show and it just felt like we just needed to check in and see how everyone was going all the time uh now it feels like I can uh re-establish that that um initial plan where we we go on topic so this week um although we're having a break today to have a little 100th birthday but this week's topic is staffing and I want to talk about you know all kinds of things um coming up I want to do a food media week I want to do a cultural appropriation week I want to talk about indigenous um food food ways and food issues there's so much that I, I want to talk about and cover I feel like it can go on forever so I suppose it's meant for me it's a different way to communicate and a different way to connect with people and to yeah just think about issues in in the industry that I find myself embedded in. It's been a pretty catastrophic year for the industry particularly in Melbourne how, how do you see the next year and you know what's the positives to come from this for the for the industry in Victoria? Uh, I think people know that they can deal with a lot. Like people have realised how resilient they are and how resilient the industry is. I think people have realised how much it's valued by the community, how much people love restaurants and, and see them as part of their their own identity and as, you know, as the, and as part of the city's identity. I think there are going to be some super big challenges. I mean, a lot of businesses started the pandemic behind the eight ball financially and they've you know it's people have had rent abatements as job keeper um 
you know, maybe the banks have been a bit kinder. There's, there's those kinds of things that that, that those um, concessions won't be there forever. And I think, you know, it's something that you've touched on a lot, you know, the when JobKeeper winds up at the end of March, as it's currently slated to do, I think that's going to be a cliff for a lot of businesses. And I feel like we won't really know where we're at until we sort of are coming into next summer. Like who did who did survive the demise of JobKeeper and then winter and is ready for, you know, a, another summer? What is going to happen with travel? Like is the fact that Australians can't go overseas enough to compensate for the lack of people coming in? And staffing is going to be, I mean, that's why I'm on it this week. It's its just a really predictable crisis that, you know, we knew when we were talking about why we needed to keep the visa holders. It's not just, I mean, you know, it was an issue of social justice and compassion, but it was also because the industry needed those people to climb out the other side. And as we climb out the other side, we are predictably finding that there are not enough people to staff restaurants. So how is that going to shake down? Is there going to be a magic influx of locals who suddenly, um, you know, their eyes are their their eyes are opened to the world of hospitality, and they suddenly train up and get experience I don't know like there's a lot of challenges but I think optimism and positivity can carry us a long way it's carried us through a really difficult winter and it definitely feels hopeful I'm hearing from a lot of people that you know people are out people are spending and uh yeah things things aren't aren't uh yeah, they're not back to 100%, but they're, um, but you can see that they might be soon. How about you? You've been absolutely extraordinary with your energy. I don't know anyone else in food media that's done what you've done this year, whether it's the podcast or cooking at Attica or just everything that you've been doing is extraordinary. Um, have, has this year changed Danny Valen? <laughs> I think so. I think I've been like activated like an almond um <laughs> there's, there's like 10 of you <laughs> uh well uh, you know what it's like as a freelancer huck it's like you you it's really hard to say no, <laughs> no to stuff right and this year particularly especially when I had a, like a massive um chunk of my work just like evaporate in March so yeah then I started just I mean most of the stuff I've been doing has not been paid through the pandemic but um you know behind the scenes I've been doing bits and pieces of copywriting and and um you know it's like I'm not it's definitely not a hard luck story I'm 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 fine but yeah I have just (laughs) kept saying yes to things so this so I am a bit I I actually noticed like two weeks after we came out of lockdown I was like oh my god I'm actually really tired now and I think a lot of people had that sort of feeling of elation followed by a bit of a slump and I felt that and I think it was also because I just got really scared we're going to go back into it and I don't know I guess the more zero days we get the better I feel but I'm not relaxed about it um so I think it'll be nice to have a holiday at some point but I basically feel feel pretty fine and pretty energized it's actually it's a pretty big week this week because it's the last week of the Attica Soup project that's that's very bittersweet, but I mean, I suppose it, it means that I'll get quite a bit of time back, and it means the reason we're stopping it is because 
people people don't really need it right now. Um, it's which is great, but it's so it's so bittersweet. It's been such a feature of my 2020 and so much fun as well as so draining. And if you when you asked earlier about what's it been like to hold people's stories, I think the the t- most tired I've been is on a Thursday after giving out soup and uh you know it's always been so enriching but also I've just found it quite uh it's just a very particular tiredness of it's just putting yeah just trying to keep people buoyed and and you know f- and fed in a, in a very practical way that's been yeah so I'm really going to miss it like hell but um it's exciting to think that it might be the time to stop it as we move forward and restrictions ease further in Melbourne and we look beyond COVID, what, what are you most looking forward to in the industry? Uh, I really will be so excited to go on a road trip and, you know, just to get out of Melbourne and see some big sky and go to some country restaurants. It has felt so weird to be locked off from regional Victoria, especially you know, after the bushfires and it was such a focus of people in Melbourne or, you know, p- people in Australian cities to to um, spend in the regions and we just weren't able to do that. Um, yeah, we just haven't been able to do that. So I'm really looking forward to loving the regions and, um, yeah, the bushfires, I feel like we're going to notice the fires again once we start travelling this summer especially I go camping in East Gippsland every summer and that got burnt in January and I'm really scared to see it even though I really want to badly go there. So 100 episodes is absolutely amazing. So congratulations on that. As you mentioned, the purpose of Dirty Linen originally was to shine a light on the issues in the industry. What can we expect moving forward now as restrictions ease with the podcast? What's what, what have we got in store? Yeah, I think there's so many big issues and I guess some of them will sort of spring from the pandemic, like staffing, like why aren't there any staff? But, if you know, anyone that, that works in hospital can tell you that there was already a staffing crisis. It was already hard to find the right people to fill the positions. I really want to get into uh, a lot of cultural stuff. Um, so, yeah, like racism, uh sexism, cultural appropriation, a working conditions, the award, like it's the, it's the structure of the industry, just stuff that's going to be quite controversial. I want to talk about writing about food media, writing about food, what's it for, who gets to do it, um, yeah, what's, what's good and what's bad, uh, what am I doing wrong, um, yeah, and, you know, you and Rob will also give me ideas <laughs> about what else we should talk about. Um, I really want to do one on sea, a week on seafood. I want to do a lot of stuff on suppliers. It's, uh, it's, you know, what regenerative farming. I guess just one thing we've probably learnt a bit through the pandemic is how connected our foodways are and, you know, just the very stark uh, site of empty supermarket shelves was rightly shocking for people. So, you know, why did that happen? Uh, what other ways are there to supply ourselves with food? Those are the kinds of questions I'm really interested in as well. When uh, Rob 
and I and you started talking about this idea, um, I don't think we foresaw what, what was coming. It's been pretty extraordinary well, what you and Rob have built. Um, I can't wait to see what you do next. 100 episodes is just mind-blowing. It's absolutely amazing. And, um, well, congratulations and good luck with everything. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Harkin. You know, I'm never going to catch deep in the weeds. You're like at what, like what are you, 150 or something, 170? What is it? Um, well, we missed the odd episode, so you might catch us. <laughs> Honestly, as you well know, I couldn't be doing it without you and without Rob. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the pandemic's been a great way to a great, an odd forum an opportunity to connect with people in different ways. And I'm, yeah, super grateful that it's brought us together like this. Well, I think that's a really interesting point too because Rob and I started Deep in the Weeds in March and we didn't see each other for the whole seven, first seven months of Deep in the Weeds. He lives in Sydney and I live in Canberra. <laughs> now, yeah. you live in Melbourne and you've been stuck there. You haven't seen Rob or me this year. It, actually, I think I saw you in January in the hotel foyer of the Sofitel, you'd just been interviewing Ramsey in a hotel room and then I was next on the list and we bumped into each other. Yeah, I, I softened him up for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was all warm and cuddly when I went in there. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so, Yeah, I know. We've got to get together. Yeah, thanks to technology, we the three of us actually haven't been in a room together um, since creating, um, well, since you and Rob really delivered dirty linen. So um, Christmas party or some sort of party at some stage would be amazing. Yeah, we've got to do it. And I think we know where we're going to do it. But um, it's going to be in country Victoria at a very special restaurant. Um, Annie, we're coming for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, well, thanks. It's been amazing. And uh, I've learned a lot from you. And I really appreciate it. Thanks, Huck. And thanks, Rob. Thanks, Daddy. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. Babe, I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> husband. I thought you were talking to me then. That's yeah, <laughs> you're my babe too. Um <laughs> Sorry, I just went blank. <laughs> um, I had, I had, I had. Oh no, that's that's it. Um,